0: Welcome to Episode 7 of the No Persinium Podcast. I'm Noah Nelson. This, of course, is the podcast about immersive and interactive theater and all stuff vaguely like it. Today on the show, our New York coordinator, Zay Amsbury, is talking with Michael Tara Garver, the director of Together We Are Making a Poem in Honor of Life, and the person who coined the term Open Frame – Zay and Michael are going to talk about the play, they, they get into it in depth, and touch a little bit on Open Frame. Um, hopefully we'll have her back for another episode at some point. They recorded this in a cafe in Brooklyn, and kind of just when they were getting into the theoretical meat, uh, some people showed up and it got a little noisy. So I almost consider this uh, an, an amuse-bouche, if you will. Uh, for a broader, larger conversation. But there's some real gems in here that I was excited to hear. I literally just finished listening to it right before I recorded this. Uh, I'm recording this on Thursday, June 18th. Uh, Here's a few of the things that are going on. Number one, uh, you can go see Together We Are Making a Poem in Honor of Life in New York at PS 142 in New York City just through June 28th coincidentally, uh, that's right around the time that the Hollywood Fringe Festival's going to be wrapping up. Uh, there are two shows there right now that people here in L.A. should really check out. Um, the first one is Hamlet Mobile. It's totally free. It's a series of uh, pop-ups and immersives inside a converted van. Uh Riffs on Hamlet, that's produced by Lauren Ludwig and Monica Miklas, operating under the brand Capital W. Uh, Those names for Fringers might be familiar. They're some of the powerhouses behind Lost Moon Radio, which is taking a bye year this year. Also, I just saw this one the other night, and sadly it is sold out, but hopefully that means it'll be able to come back at some point. Getting to Know You by Annie Lesser. It's an interactive piece for eight Eight actors and eight audience members. Um, it is is the kind of immersive where you sit down in a chair, but it's this interaction between the audience and the performers. Uh, quite an interesting, non-linear, uh, sort of broken narrative piece. Uh, if you're going, hopefully uh, go with a friend or seven. Uh, That'll help you piece it all together. Did a long-form review on that show over at our Medium collection this week, medium.com slash no-persinium. So check that out. Uh, That's what's on the top of the mind in terms of the news. Uh, Hopefully we're going to have an episode next week. Got to figure out what it's going to be, but uh, we might have to take a bye week. Uh, Until then, um, check out this uh, interview. Between Zay and Michael Tara Garver, I uh, hope you enjoyed as much as I did.
1: So, uh, my name is Jamesbury. I am here. <laughs> I'm here with with um, with Michael Michael Tara Garver, mm-hmm. um, and we are talking about her recent production. Together, we are making a poem in honor of life, which uh, I got perfectly in the first take. I'll mm-hmm. have to tell you. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's start with talking about the play. Sure and a bit about how you work, and then we can move into a larger conversation about Absolutely. open frame and immersive theater.
2: Um,
1: so how did you come to work on this play? <laughs> oh.
2: uh, well, I came to work on this play. Um, I teach up at Columbia University, um, uh, which is where I got my master's and also mm. where I teach now, um, and I teach collaboration, which is one of those crazy things to tell anyone that you teach, because mm. I don't really um, understand how to articulate it, but I do. I teach it there, and I teach um, at Playwrights Horizons as well, and i um, I was teaching, for the graduate students, the collaboration workshop, and I met Joel Glassman, who is the producer of this, and he introduced me to Dean Pointer, who, um, and he introduced us in, like, this really great way, which was he didn't say, like, come meet this playwright, decide if you want to, you know, you guys can, like, decide if you want to date, which is basically what playwriting and director Yeah, yeah, it's like a setup. It's a setup, and it's very uncomfortable, and everyone knows the deal, and you're, like, testing each other, and and I'm not a... I don't enjoy that part of the process of the playwright directing process
1: mm-hmm.
2: so he they, they were really smart about it and they just did a series of readings of the play with Dean and, the, and, and different directors and some actors they invited
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, then we talked about the play afterwards and then I think they had another couple directors do it and then they called me and said we'd like you to direct this and um, so it felt a little like we'd already started a process which felt uh-huh. really it was really smart of Joel and of Dean um, and uh, really lovely. And so I read the play, and it's not, you know, I'm very particular. I think you have to be very specific about the work you choose to invest your time in. Of course. Um, and this play from the beginning meant a tremendous amount to me because of its content, but also because I think I am drawn to innately theatrical plays. Like, Carol Churchill uh-huh. is my is my lady, like my main, uh-huh. you know, if I could direct, if, if all the plays I got hired to direct that weren't new were Carol Churchill, I'd be <laughs> a happy lady, you know, so just because she's innately theatrical and political. And
1: and what was it that seemed innately theatrical about the script?
2: On the page, mm-hmm. the script is really hard, and it needs to be performed. And mm-hmm. the actors, in fact, said to me when they first met me, oh, this is a play that, and good, you know, like this needs a director, because yeah. it's, because it is an incredible, and that, that's not a negative, that's an incredibly, it's just a beautiful thing as a, as a director, because it's not that there's nothing there, it's that there's so much there yeah. that you have to keep etching away at it, and there's a poetry in it that is very live and very true and very real if you etch away at it. And so I kind of, I felt that, um, I felt that in in, 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 the, in reading it and also in hearing it read, and so there we
1: go. Um, as I was watching the the, well, right after right after the play, actually right after the play, I had to call my grandmother because it was her ninetieth birthday, mm-hmm. and um, hmm. I'm not going to tell you her name because she would be upset that everybody <laughs> knew. Um, but what, but as I was thinking about my grandmother and and her life after this play, the thing that kept occurring to me was how large the play felt. Yeah. Like, that play feels truly immense, but also deeply intimate to me. Totally. And as you were talking about one of the things the things that make it um, innately theatrical, one of the things, I guess ironically, for anyone who's been through a playwriting uh, BFA or MFA program, mm-hmm. or, or one that's not taught by Chuck Mee, <laughs> but, um, is that the notion of structure yeah. tends well, to mean... This beginning, middle, and hence, like, variations on an um, Aristotelian oh, yes. theme. But the nonlinear aspect of, of the piece and the way that um, the two characters jump around in space and time and relationship to each other um, and the way the play sets up that as a structure. Mm-hmm. Like, I found myself, towards the end, just both feeling confident that and deeply hoping that there wasn't some sort of climax and resolution, you know, because, I mean, where's the climax and revolution in the process of grief? You
2: can't, I mean, you can't. I mean, and just to say like the play is about this couple who has um, lost a child in an incredibly tragic way and um, often I have read plays, right, where they grapple with these big issues and things that you just go, I'm sorry, like, I think we are ill-equipped to tie a bow around this thing. Yes. And I feel that the play... In, and then you know and in the kind of direction of it that we went and I went it was very important to not typo around it but to just say at the end these people are still in the room that's yeah. what matters what matters is that when grieving when trauma happens at least in my experience it's who stays in the room and not the first day and not the third day and not the first month or the first year but like Two, three, five years later. Yeah. Who's still there? Yeah. And how do you look at someone in the eye and say, "I'm still here"? Yeah. And I think that's what's extraordinary about the play. That's what the audience, in a way, gets to do in this play. Um, but but going back to what you're saying about um, your 90 year old grandmother, I have a, a about to turn 99 year old great aunt. Oh
1: my goodness! Congratulations and then, yes, to her. She's
2: amazing. Um, and. She and I actually spoke about this play, I was trying to describe it to her, and Mm. um, she lives in Philadelphia, and I also won't say her name, Mm. but um, I realized, too, the thing you said about epic, I really love, because I was explaining to someone, the last time I got to direct a play that felt like this was when I directed an immersive production of Brian Friel's Faith Healer, Mm. which was in Chicago many years ago, Mm -hmm. and it felt like the epicness was in the details, Yeah, and that... And, that, and the details of the relationships to each other and the details of the relationship to audience and it felt like such a gift and also really hard work and also a gift all at the same time to be I think I pretty much only ever do epic plays I don't do, intentionally realize that but I think I do uh-huh. and I think that epic plays can have two people and be in a schoolhouse it yeah. doesn't mean like sometimes when I do a thing with a hundred people which happens yeah. you know it it means that the scale of it is a full range, and that we as human beings have that full range. You know. Um, so
1: um, just to, to take a let sort of take a right uh, right hand sure. turn here in talking about the play. So <laughs> I, I can imagine that if, if I were to describe to someone and I were to say, well, so this is a play um, about a mother and father who are uh, recovering from their child who um, who was shot at their school, um, I imagine that all sorts of, it's almost like, um, you would imagine, okay, it's it's happening in New York, people who made it are, like, arts New York people, Mm -hmm. and so it's going to have some, it's going to have something to say about school shootings, Mm -hmm. it's going to want to make a point maybe about gun control, Mm -hmm. um, the way the play deals with those issues um, for me, I thought was both tremendously generous and thoughtful towards people who have been through this experience, but also not, um, there was never a single moment where I felt like I was being preached at or anyone was sitting up on a soapbox. In fact, th- there's a specific moment where gun control is addressed very specifically um, and there is a kind of climax to that conversation that um, was one of my favorite moments of the entire play and I thought it was handled really wonderfully. Was there a conversation between you and the playwright and the producers and the actors about um, the, the intensity of the subject that you're addressing?
2: Oh, I mean, 100%. And I also think, you know, I grew up... I, I am very fortunate in that I grew up in a household and I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And I take, the, I take um, politics very personally and mm-hmm. I take my own politics very personally, but in doing so, just like looking at a human being, I think we have to look at the complexity of issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that liberal porn is just of no interest to me. Yes. Like, it. I have my feelings about gun control, which are that we should control them. And that, you know, and especially after Sandy Hook, I think you know, I will openly, you can put it wherever you want, how I feel about it, but that doesn't mean that in a play, my job is to preach that. I think in a play, my job is to look at human beings and crack open the complexity that they, that they feel of both. I mean, I think this is done beautifully, not only in the writing of the play about gun control, but because the one character who feels so strongly about it also feels at the same moment helpless and also says, I don't know if this will fix it. I mean, it all the, all the feelings exist. Yes. And I think um, that's sometimes I feel the problem... You know, I would love for anyone to be able to come and see this play with whatever their feelings are about gun control to have a more open and and thoughtful conversation about it Mm -hmm. because no matter what anyone feels about it, no one thinks someone should go into a school and shoot a gun. Right. I don't believe that. (laughs) So like, I think that there's a way in which the questions just be, and, and this is what I sometimes, you know, maybe politically believe immersive theater can do. It creates when immersive and good plays are matched. It creates less of a podium and more of a dialectic that is, ongoing uh, which is what I love about theater so yeah so I think the conversation it was a this is the play Dean wrote which is smart mm-hmm. B I think the actors and myself we have been very rigorous in and I'm you know very rigorous with them as are they with themselves about about at the end of the day everything in this play is about how these two human beings that have survived will continue to survive. So in that way, the political argument becomes personal, Yeah. you know, and and I think that doesn't mean it's any less, I don't feel any less strongly about gun control. It just means I feel, I feel, I feel also that like doing this site specifically in a schoolhouse has its own, has its own power, that we don't even have to talk about.
1: Right. Do you right. know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah. we can
2: talk about it, but I mean, like, we don't say that in the play. Right. And I feel that there are things that with this work you can experience and not have to say that start to resonate in a different way because so much of the play is said, you know.
1: Were there any stumbling blocks in building a relationship with PS1 free to given the, not not just the content of the play, but everything that we're talking about, that it's not a pat, here are good things and here are bad things. Let's get rid of bad things. But it's a, look, this is an experience these people are going through after having this traumatic experience.
2: You know, to be very honest, Joel managed most of that and managed most of it really well. And um, uh, Joel is our producer. And, you know, I've done site-specific work and immersive work for like 15 years. And Mm -hmm. um, so this was Joel's first time. And he was like, how do I do it? I said, you just knock on as many doors as you can. You keep knocking on them. And you go in and you see who will have a conversation. And I think... The school has been incredibly generous in knowing we were doing a play and knowing the content of it. I think it was also really important to us, for example, when we started looking at marketing materials and the way we represented the play, mm-hmm. that you know, the play was about, you know, he keeps writing join the circle or complete the circle. The play is a is not about gun control, it's about human beings and the question of gun control becomes in schools becomes a huge piece of that. I think that the way in which everyone in this process, from Courtney to Joel to Dean to the actors, we've all kind of um, addressed the issues, allowed it not allowed ourselves to be immersed in the school as opposed to um, pushing up against the school. And I think, like, you know, once you once you get them to agree and you're on a site, they usually support that. So.
1: Um, you mentioned earlier that you found the play funny. I also found the play funny. I also found the night I saw it to be like it was me and one other woman, and we we were the ones who were laughing. in yeah. Courtney, um, and and most of and I think partially it was because of um, how exposed the, um, the 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 staging makes you feel. Sure. And that there were, and then there weren't a ton of people there, so it's sort of. Even if it's a very, even if you're seeing something very funny in a dark theater, it can be difficult if there aren't that many people there. Um, Where, how did you, um, what was the approach you took with the actors in terms of the funny moments?
2: Well, I mean, you know, we actually laughed a lot in rehearsal because we had to. Uh You know, like, we really enjoyed each other. We we had to, and my kind of, and I think that on the evening you saw it, you know, I think that the thing with this kind of work, in fact, we had had a night... I think it was the night before where we had a lot of people engaged mm. in the humor of it and the audience as i've kind of warned these actors in this very immersive experience I said, I mean, the audience really their energy depending on their energy that night like if it's a really sweaty day outside in the middle of summer you're going to get a different experience yeah it's like really engaging with human beings because they're right next to you and at the same time you know, we're taking care of the audience, we're not trying to put them on the spot yeah. too much which I feel really important in this piece. So we just kind of worked on like, this is a moment where this person shown up to this circle and needs the rest of the support, they need someone to lab. Yeah. and they're making a joke with someone because that's what they need. Yeah. Just like through the whole process that was what we needed and also like, parenthood is both it's all the things. Parenthood is Traumatic and sad and breaks your heart and hilarious yeah. and absurd, you know. Um, I just spent the last couple of days with my three-year-old cousin, who, um, the daughter of my cousin, and, and just like, you know, just the amazing absurdity and infuriatingness and all the things that make up parenthood, watching my cousin go through that. It's just, and, um, and so we tapped into that when we were looking at the humor that you couldn't talk about parenthood without, yeah. you couldn't be grappling with parenthood without going well, sometimes I just need to say, "Quiet," <laughs> you know, and the absurdity of that.
1: Um, so let's let's transition a little bit into talking specifically about open frame and immersive theater. And um, there was a moment the evening I, I saw the performance when there was a, there was a couple who were sitting across from me in the circle, and they were sitting. Um, Right next to one of the places where the actors are often sitting down and performing and speaking to the person next to them. And it was a couple, a man and a woman. And both of them, throughout most of the performance, were sort of like their arms were crossed and they are sort mm-hmm. of sitting straight backed. And I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know why their bodies were like that, but they're pretty mm-hmm. tense.
2: It's a, I mean, it's a scary. It's both scary for some people, and then other people like have been leaning in from the beginning. Totally,
1: absolutely.
2: And you know, no, re- you know, I always, as I say to the actors, I'm like, don't decide what you believe, don't make an assumption about what people's body language means. Yes. Make, reach out to you know, and so yeah. So, anyway, so, so they're doing that. So
1: ke- keeping the not make making no assumptions about what's going on, based on their body language and mind, and it, it describe to you what because I, I love watching audiences, I, I love it, especially and made it so easy. There's a point in the play when, um, when uh, Rebecca sits next to Brian and puts her feet up on his lap and says, massage my feet. Um, and, they, and they work through that moment. Um, and then and I noticed that the woman who was in this couple, she'd unfolded her arms and kind of like uh, extended her legs and kind of um, uncrossed them. And then she kicked off one of her shoes. Mm-hmm. And then she crossed her legs and started massaging her own foot. And I thought, my God, that's so interesting. And then, about five minutes later, after she'd stopped massaging her foot, put her foot back down, but the shoe is still off, um, Rebecca sits down next to her, and it's a pretty intense moment. And and the woman, she leans back again, doesn't quite bring up her arms, but without using her hands, puts her shoe back on underneath the table in, in this moment of, of interaction. And it made me... it. It, it was one of those. It's one of those things that um, I find really interesting and appealing about all forms of audience interaction with, with the stage. And I wonder when you talk about keeping people, giving the audience a way to protect themselves. Um, in an essay, you talk about um, how it's how to to sort of unilaterally say, "Oh, proscenium is bad. Let's destroy the proscenium." Um, is sort of a silly approach to theater. I mean, we've all had... I mean, we need that. And it also takes different forms. And you talk about how the masks um, at Sleep No More in a way are a kind of pristine because they create a frame and it's just a space and a distance for the audience. So in thinking about those issues, um, how did those issues and those relationships work their way into working on this piece?
2: Yeah. So, I mean... We could sit and I could talk about open frame and the relationship between safety and kind of risk for a long time. You know, one of of my beliefs as an audience, I mean, the good news is as an audience member, I actually don't want someone, as an audience member and as an artist, I get very angry if someone manipulates me or pushes me to do something Uh or forces me to do something. I actually Uh feel like you're not developing a relationship with me. You're just telling me what to do and I, that feels false. Mm -hmm. So, I believe when there's interaction, we have to earn it, and it has to be there for a reason, and it needs to forward the piece, and that we also need to take care of the audience in a way that allows them to have some agency and choice in the way they interact with the piece. Uh And the interaction in this piece is actually Limited. Yeah, it's 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 very it's very small. It's will you look at me when I talk to you? I mean, it's it's simply that. And if you if you don't actually in the world of the piece, it's okay and it makes sense because in the world of a um, it's kind of a uh, it's structured much like the the setting is supposed to feel like a grief counseling circle that is happening at a school. And in that instance, even some of the character the character one of the characters for some period of time can't look people in the eye. And in that instance, sometimes people need to cross their arms and be and sit back. Sure. So so for me, first off, it's figuring out what scenario will allow the audience to feel truly who they are when they're there. If I tell you, you as the audience are my brother, I just go, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not your brother. I don't believe you anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I sit back and then I'm not engaged. But if I say to you, you're another human being sitting here, here's how we're going to grow in our relationship. Um... And the other thing is I work really closely with designers. Mm-hmm. I My relationship with designers is I think of design as a part of the poetry and as part of the music of a piece. So in the craft of this piece the way in which we use light and sound mm-hmm. is as closely crafted to the shifts in the play as... Anything else as their breaths are so that the audience kind of has steps to, to step into To step safely into their world in the piece mm-hmm. um, In the same way that Rebecca and Brian need to. so I don't know I Think safety is really important in this place so that the audience can take the risks they need to take And that's my feeling in theater and in, in whatever immersive or open framework you're doing you have to first create the safety of the rules to to allow people to have trans, transformative experiences, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes they won't. I'm not saying that it does it. I don't want to be manipulated into it, but I want to know that I'm taken care of, mm-hmm. and I know the rules. I mean, this is what I write in the article. Like, I know the rules of when I show up to a proscenium stage. Like, right. I sit down, curtain goes up, a thing happens. Maybe someone walks in the audience, but like ultimately. I know the rules. I know what my, what my behavior is, and I know what your behavior is supposed to be, and so in that way, I can give over. And I think the mistake for open-frame art artistry is, A, to say it's all the same, because it's not, and that the relationships are always the same, and B, to say, well, just like anything, when I start a new relationship, I have to let people have some time to figure out what the rules are of this relationship, and mm-hmm. my job as a director is to is to give the audience those rules or those structures to feel secure so that then they can take the risk. And it's and it's different every different play, because every play has different story and has different relationships. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but I think every single process I'm in, I'm always thinking about how do we take the steps that engage this audience. And develop a relationship with this audience. Sometimes I've done that with work over months. You know, we start the relationship four months before with texts, and sometimes I do it in the way we do it with this play, with lights and
1: sound. Excellent. Um, I think that's really good. I think we're gonna gonna close out. It's also getting a bit loud at this cafe that we're at. Um, But thank you so much for taking the time to chat a little bit and sort of scratch the surface of some ideas. Um, I would very much encourage if people are in New York to come, to uh, go see Together, we are making a poem in honor of life at PS 142.
0: Big thanks to Zay for doing the interview in New York City this episode. Hey, you can find Zay on Twitter at Zay Amsbury, Z-A-Y-A-M-S-B-U-R-Y. You can find Michael Tara Garver on Twitter as well. She's at M-T Garver. That's M T G A V. Sorry, I spelled it wrong. M-T-G-A-R-V-E-R. Sorry about that, everybody. Uh, sometimes I can't even read from uh, a laptop computer. Uh, you can find us, as always, at No Priscinium on Facebook. Look for No Priscinium. The Medium Collection, which is getting chock more stuff in there, uh, is uh, medium.com no-priscinium. Uh, the Patreon, if you want to throw a couple of extra dollars and then we get a better microphone, oh my goodness, we're so close, um, that's at patreon.com slash no Uh, you're not even listening to this. Hey, uh, like I mentioned, uh, I'm hoping to get some interviews with the folks at The Fringe this weekend. If I can schedule that, we're going to have an episode this next week. Uh, if I can't, uh, might be a bye week. Uh, we will have some more for you very, very soon, however. Um... This is no one else, and this has been No Persinium. And until next time, I will see you at the show.